Hi there, I'm Paulina, LWC Studios' managing producer. Lend me your ear for a minute. The Supreme Court's decision to repeal Roe v. Wade devastated me and many of my colleagues in podcasting. It continues to be important that we stand together in supporting a person's right to choose. That's why I'm participating in the Listen to Women Coalition. It's a group of audio creators dedicated to uplifting and creating pro-choice content. We've launched a merch campaign with 100% of proceeds going to the National Network of Abortion Funds. You can find a link to Listen to Women on LWC Studios' Twitter, at LWC Studios. Buy a t-shirt, wear it to your next hang to go to a live podcast show and on the way to the polls. And tell a friend. Thanks. Seventy million adults in the United States have a criminal record. In Season 3, we'll explore how our rapidly changing reality is impacting those in custody and the policies that keep them there. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller. The sounds of children crying out for their families will be difficult to remove from our minds. And the reality that our country separated thousands of families seeking refuge will haunt us for generations. Those cries you heard are from audio ProPublica obtained in 2018 of children who had just been separated from their parents by immigration authorities. According to a Department of Health and Human Services report from last year, quote, the total number of children separated from a parent or guardian by immigration authorities is unknown, unquote. Adding to this is an unfolding asylum crisis. Since coming to office, the Trump administration has issued numerous policies that are dismantling asylum as a legal right. The administration has made it nearly impossible for people to gain protection. Arriving asylum seekers remain detained, sometimes for months or even years. Then COVID-19 hit immigration detention centers and local jails that have contracts with ICE. And these facilities became virus hotspots. Thousands of people who fled to the U.S. fearing for their lives faced a brand new threat. Last April, reporter Valeria Fernandez started getting phone calls from dozens of asylum seekers detained in the privately run La Palma Correctional Center in Arizona. The callers were from Mexico, Cuba, Venezuela, and El Salvador. They said the detention center was a ticking time bomb. They described waking up scared. And feeling desperate. Javier de Jesus Sulaya, who fled El Salvador fearing for his life, had been locked up for nearly a year. Es desgarrador saber que aquí estamos 
It's heart-wrenching to be here with the uncertainty of whether we would live or die in detention. But asylum seekers were not always locked up like this. Reporters Valeria Fernandez and Jude Jaffe Block spent a year following the cases of asylum seekers and tracking changes in asylum policy. Their story explains how we got here. Valeria starts us off. In March, just as the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States, Jude and I drive to Sonoita, Mexico, a border town. We've been tracing the cases of two asylum seekers from Guatemala, a 22-year-old woman named Maria and her five-year-old child. It's interesting that we are heading to Sonoita this morning. It is almost the one-year anniversary of Maria and her child coming through Sonoita and presenting themselves at the port of entry on the Arizona side of the border and asking for protection. What does it make you think about? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, yeah, we're driving right now to the place where their journey began. We arrive at an internet cafe that Maria once visited. It's a bright purple storefront that draws a young crowd, mostly local students from a nearby school. The kids come for the video games and Tosti Locos, a favorite snack. But Maria came for different reasons. It's the only place I know of in town where we can print and photocopy and email. That's Alexa Tamar Smith an American border activist and volunteer who spends a lot of time here in Sonoita helping asylum seekers, including Maria and her child. The first time I met Maria and her little girl was at a migrant shelter. Alexa Tamar describes Maria as petite and often shying away from attention. The little girl is outgoing. We aren't using Maria's last name or her child's name for their own safety. I was introduced to the little girl by Maria as her daughter. And I, I always saw their relationship as that of a mother and daughter. Alexa Tamar didn't realize it right away, but came to learn that the girl is actually Maria's niece. When her niece was a baby, her mother, Maria's sister, was killed by a gang in Guatemala. Maria became the child's guardian since she was her closest living relative. Maria is the only family member that this girl has any memories of. Maria wanted to apply for asylum in the U.S., but volunteers warned her she and the girl could be detained or separated. If they were lucky, they would be released. Border agents had a lot of discretion. The year before, in 2018, a federal judge had barred the Trump administration from separating parents and children at the border. But there was no guarantee it wouldn't happen to Maria and her niece. Maria hoped for the best, but volunteers helped her prepare for the worst. Here, at the Purple Internet Cafe, volunteers helped arm Maria with documents that showed her relationship to the girl. Birth certificates, death certificates, plus a letter in both English and Spanish stating that she did not consent to be separated. Among these legal documents was a particularly hard one for Maria to sign. And I remember we were sitting inside, and at that time, Maria didn't know how to read. 
So we're going through it line by line and making sure that she understands every line and then as a whole what the document meant. And I could just sort of like see her face blanch as we were going through it and kind of her eyes glaze. And I think, I can only assume, but I think in that moment sort of the enormity of what she was about to do was sinking in and she wasn't, she was having trouble like absorbing what was going on. If Maria's worst-case scenario came to pass and U.S. officials did not release them and instead detain Maria, the document gave an attorney permission to track Maria down in the country's sprawling immigration detention system. Do you have a sense of what her biggest fear was at that moment of what could happen? Being separated from her little girl. Just a few days before the girl's sixth birthday, in March 2019, Maria and her niece held hands as they walked up to the Lukeville, Arizona port of entry to ask for asylum. They were immediately detained. Maria tells us what happened next during a phone call from the Eloy Detention Center in Central Arizona. Maria says that a day after she and her niece were detained, they were sleeping in a room when a border official came in and pulled the girl out of Maria's arms and took her away. She says a female guard told her, We're going to take the girl and not give her back. I told her, you can't do that without my authorization. Yes, of course we can, she told me. When Maria and her niece present themselves at the port of entry in 2019, the Trump administration is in the midst of turning the asylum system on its head. The biggest loophole drawing illegal aliens to our borders is the use of fraudulent or meritless asylum claims to gain entry into our great country. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement did not respond to our request for an interview. But in the months before Maria arrived at the border, President Donald Trump accused asylum seekers of being gang members and making fraudulent claims. My administration is finalizing a plan to end the rampant abuse of our asylum system. The asylum system, designed to protect people from harm, became one that inflicts harm. One way is by locking up asylum seekers for months or years until they either win their case, are deported, or give up. We're going to no longer release. We're going to catch. We're not going to release. They're going to stay with us until the deportation hearing or the asylum hearing takes place. Trump has said that detaining asylum seekers ensures they will attend their court hearings. But government records show that the vast majority do so anyway when they're released. The reason why, I mean, the administration is doing this, you know, just to be explicit about it, I think is fairly obvious. Michael Tan is an attorney with the ACLU. They know that detention has a coercive effect. I mean, being in jail puts a lot of pressure on people um, to give up their asylum claims, even if they know in their hearts that they have uh, real fears of being sent back to their home countries, that their lives and their safety are in danger. 
ICE detains asylum seekers in a network of more than 200 immigration detention facilities, including detention centers run by private corporations and dozens of county jails. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how many people detained are asylum seekers like Maria. By September 2019, more than 50,000 adult immigrants are held in this matrix of detention centers, according to ICE data. About a quarter of them, more than 13,000, have passed a screening saying they fear persecution or torture in their home countries, which is often a first step for asylum or other protection claims. I meet Maria for the first time at the Eloy Detention Center. It's been six months since Maria and her niece were separated at the border, and she still can't grasp why she's being detained. I didn't do anything. My only mistake was simply to ask for asylum and come into this country. Jude and I are reporting on her case for The Guardian, and I visit her with volunteers who know her from a shelter in Mexico. It's a hot September morning. Maria is wearing a dark green uniform and a white rosary around her neck. She hides her head in her hands to cry when she speaks about her family. Later in the day, we continue talking by phone. Well, my family is dead, and the only family that I have is my sister's daughter. Maria left Guatemala after a series of deadly attacks against her family over a land dispute. A local gang in her rural town killed her mother in front of her when she was a teenager. Years later, in 2013, they murdered her dad and her sister. Because I ran, that's how they didn't kill me, the day they killed my father. She managed to escape and call the police. When she returned later that evening, she found her sister's eight-month-old baby near death, with blood in her mouth, her little legs bound. Since then, she's raised her as her own daughter. I didn't know what to do with her. I've never cared for a baby before, and it was very difficult. The only thing I had left to do was to cry with her. When she cried, I cried too. After her niece was taken away from her at the port of entry in Arizona, Maria learned the child was sent to New York to foster care. It was only later that she understood New York was a state more than 2,400 miles away. Without her, I feel like everything is over. I feel very lonely without her. Maria panicked, fearing she might lose her niece forever. She thought that she would be deported and the girl would be adopted. The volunteers Maria met in Mexico rallied to help. They located her niece and got an organization that advocates for children to arrange phone calls between them. I told her that I hope they would release both of us soon. But she's suffering because she thinks that she won't see me again. When they speak, Maria tells her niece that soon they'll be together, even if she doesn't know how. 
She thinks that I don't love her, but I tell her that I do. It's not because I don't love her, it's that I'm far away from her. They dream about a reunion. With a magic wand, she will come, so we can be together. She says she will disappear with the magic wand. By the time Marie is detained in 2019, a legal fight against the system that keeps thousands of asylum seekers locked up indefinitely is growing. One person challenging asylum detention is a Haitian man named Ansley Damus. Hi. Hi, Ansley. This How is are you? I'm yes. good. I'm good. And we're joined by Philippe, who is a Creole speaker. We're speaking with Ansley through Zoom. He's a tall man in his 40s. Since he's still learning English, we're joined by a Creole interpreter. In Haiti, Ansley was a teacher and taught ethics. In 2014, during a seminar with students, he criticized a local politician for corruption. Later that day, an armed gang with ties to the politician threw a rock at Ansley, beat him up, and set his motorcycle on fire. Then he got death threats. Et puis, après 10 jours, moi obligé quitter pays. 10 days later, I had to leave Haiti. It's with tears I left my country, leaving two kids behind. My little daughter, four years old. My little son, five months old. And his beloved wife. Ansley first went to South America and eventually made it to Calexico, where he presented himself at the port of entry in October 2016. He was taken into custody and eventually wound up outside of Cleveland in a windowless cell in the Geauga County Jail. It's a big room that can occupy 60 people. In this large, windowless room, with no ventilation and no fresh air, one could not see sunlight. It was air-conditioned, however. The jail had a contract with ICE to hold immigrants and asylum seekers. Ansley was shocked that this is what asking for asylum would lead to. It does not make any sense to me that they would throw people who are looking for protection in jail. If Ansley had arrived a few years earlier, it's almost certain he would have been released on parole and would have been able to live freely while fighting his asylum case. Here's attorney Michael Tan. Under the Obama administration, DHS put a directive in place about a decade ago called the Parole Directive that generally prohibits the detention of asylum seekers. The overwhelming majority of arriving asylum seekers were granted parole in the years immediately after the policy took effect. Because, you know, there was just a recognition. It didn't make sense to lock up asylum seekers while they were fighting their cases. A lot of these people go on to win asylum, so why are we putting them in jail? But as more asylum seekers started coming during the Obama administration, parole grants became less common. In early 2017, ICE denied Ansley's bid for parole. That same year, at the regional ICE office closest to Ansley, the new Trump administration also denied 98% of all parole requests from asylum seekers. The numbers were similar in other parts of the country. 
Not all asylum seekers have lawyers, but Ansley managed to get one. After he'd been jailed for six months, his lawyer helped him win asylum from an immigration judge. The victory should have meant Ansley would be freed. But ICE appealed the ruling, and Ansley learned he'd have to stay in jail in the meantime, even though he'd won. And I started to panic. At that point, I felt like blood was coming out of my nose. I got on my bed, and there was nothing I could do but yell. Ansley had no way to communicate with his family in Haiti. He prayed and remembered Nelson Mandela. He spent 27 years in jail, and yet later, he became president. Ansley won his asylum case a second time, but ICE appealed it again. Then, an American couple in Cleveland Heights offered to help him try to get out of custody. We had a friend contact us. She's really involved in immigration. And she asked us if we would be willing to sponsor an asylum seeker. So we kind of looked at each other and said, yes, we would do it. We kind of felt it was, we were being called to do it. We thought it was outrageous, un-American even, that Ensley had been locked up for, at that point, 14 months and had no contact with his family no way to exercise, nothing really to do in this big dormitory room with no windows. That's Melody Hart and Gary Benjamin, a couple in their 60s. They talked to us from their home. They agreed to be Ansley's sponsors so he could live with them if ICE released him. Ansley told us it was a happy surprise the day Melody and Gary showed up to visit him. The thing that got to me is when they sent me letters and they told me, oh, it's not just them. There was a whole army who were praying for me and ready to help me. And I knew I was in good hands. Melody and Gary formed a group called Ansley's Army. They would send him cards and send him encouragement. And if we were gone, they would come in our place to visit him and talk to him. But even with Melody and Gary as willing sponsors, I still denied Ansley's second parole request. At that point, Ansley became the lead plaintiff in an ACLU class action lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's blanket denials of parole to asylum seekers. In July 2018, Ansley's lawsuit got a favorable ruling. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has ruled that the Trump administration cannot arbitrarily detain people seeking asylum. ICE was violating its own policies, the judge found. He ordered ICE officials in five regional offices, including Ansley's, to review each individual case to determine whether asylum seekers qualified for parole. Next, Ansley applied for parole a third time. His application included an ACLU petition with 27,000 signatures calling for his release. And Melody and Gary assembled a packet of letters of support. There were local officials like judges and, and council members, and there were doctors. We were looking to make it bulletproof. But ICE still said no. This time, ICE officials did submit the denial in writing. They checked three boxes on a form. Ansley had not proven he was not a flight risk, he had not proven he had substantial ties to the community, and he hadn't convinced ICE that if he got out on parole, he would still show up at his remaining immigration hearings. 
And, it, and we were shocked because we thought we'd done everything possible to get them to agree. Yeah, I think the phrase shocked, but maybe not so surprised, because <laughs> that's the way they were acting towards the silent seekers. Ansley, with the help of the ACLU, once again sued in federal court. This time it was a habeas corpus lawsuit that argued Ansley's detention was unconstitutional and asked a federal judge to release him. The federal government countered that Ansley was a flight risk with no ties to the U.S. But all of Ansley's new friends were determined to prove otherwise. They drove three hours from Cleveland Heights to the federal hearing in Michigan. We rented a bus, and then we packed the bus with people from Ainsley's Army and people interested in the case. And we went up to Ann Arbor and packed the courtroom so that they had to bring in extra chairs because there weren't enough seats. Their presence proved that Ansley did have ties to the community. ICE agreed to finally grant Ansley parole as long as he wore an ankle bracelet. He was released right around Thanksgiving 2018. Photographers captured the moment as he hugged Melody and Gary and thanked his lawyers. By then, he'd been jailed for more than two years. He then lived with Gary and Melody and recently moved into an apartment he shares with another asylum seeker. His asylum case is still unresolved, and he can't get visas for his family, so they're still in Haiti. He gave ICE his current address and checks in regularly. He has a full-time job at a foundry. I go to church. I am taking an English class at a high school. Attorney Michael Tan worked on the class action lawsuit Ansley brought challenging ICE's parole policies under Trump. He says the suit made a difference. It helped at least 3,500 arriving asylum seekers get parole, who might not have otherwise. I can tell you overall, parole grants went up after the court order. I mean, they could only go up, given that they were at zero at the time we brought the case. But compliance with the court order has been quite uneven. The Trump administration has created other hurdles to getting asylum, though some efforts have been blocked by federal courts. They started forcing tens of thousands of asylum seekers to remain in Mexico until their cases were resolved. They even sent some people to wait in Guatemala. And a new policy said asylum seekers who crossed a third country before getting to the U.S. had to apply for asylum there first. Federal courts have since struck down that policy. But in the meantime... The numbers of people coming up to the southern border to apply for asylum drastically decreased during 2019. Sarah Pierce is a policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. And we do think that is because of the like set of interlocking policies the administration put into place at the southern border. Back in Arizona, at the Eloy Detention Center in 2019, Maria is feeling a similar despair that Ansley felt. I'm very depressed. Very. I don't know what to do anymore. I've been locked up for so long. Her only escape is to sleep. But when she does, I feel like someone is going to trap me. 
She also worries about her niece living with a strange family in New York. I'm the only one who knows how to take care of her better than anyone else. Her only way to reunite with her niece is to fight for asylum. Like Ansley, Maria needs an attorney. But she can't afford to pay for one. Almost literally every attorney, or at least literally every attorney we spoke to, who was in Arizona, said we are at capacity. We have cases, many cases, just like Maria's. We want to take this case if we could, but we have exponentially more clients than we're supposed to have. Sean Wellock is a brand new immigration attorney who heard about Maria's case from volunteers. He initially agrees to just give legal advice, but ends up taking on the case pro bono because no one else will. He is disturbed by how much tragedy Maria has endured. I kept expecting to find out at some point, wait, okay, okay, there's been a misunderstanding. Everything we thought we knew about the facts was, was wrong, or there's some massive deception here. But no, the more we talked with her, the more we were like, this person's been put through hell, and she needs help. So Sean, along with his associate, Herman Herrera, applied for asylum for Maria. Maria faced death threats in Guatemala. And the immigration judge explains in his ruling she is credible. But he denies her asylum request. He didn't want to grant me asylum. I don't know why. Asylum is only available to people who can prove they fit into certain categories, like persecution on religious or political grounds, or for belonging to a specific social group. The judge doesn't think Maria's situation fits within the very narrow application of asylum laws. I felt very sad that despite all the things that have happened to me, he didn't want to give me asylum. Her attorneys think she still has grounds to appeal. That leaves Maria with a difficult decision. She can decide to appeal the judge's ruling and ask for parole on humanitarian grounds so she can reunite with her niece. Or, if she can't stand waiting and be detained any longer, she can choose to be deported. It's overwhelming for Maria to make up her mind. I've decided I'm going to appeal because I want to do as much as I can for the girl. I don't want to lose the only person I have in my family. Her attorneys ask for her to be released on parole, and Maria waits anxiously for ICE's decision. I don't know if the deportation officer will grant me parole. Things start looking up when a stranger volunteers to sponsor her. I figure we have the room for her and her daughter, and I called my husband, and then I called my mother and asked. I told them about the story, and and it was, you know, an overwhelming yes ever since. Anita Romero, a retiree in New York, heard volunteers were collecting letters of support to convince ICE to release Maria, but she wanted to do more. And just like Melody and Gary had hosted Ansley, Anita will house Maria if ICE agrees to let her out. I sent her some photos of the family and told her we're all waiting for her, you know, for both of them anxiously. And and um, that seems to really bring her spirits up. Anita's grandparents are from Puerto Rico. 
She tells us that she has spent her life working with underserved communities. Anita also speaks Spanish, so she's able to talk on the phone with Maria. Despite Anita's offer to sponsor her, Maria is denied parole. Her heartbreak became our heartbreak, and, um, you know, it, it took, it took a, a month or so, you know, while she processed it and, and um, made her decision about whether to press forward, and I'm so glad she did, you know, decide to keep on fighting. By December 2019, supporters of Maria and her niece collect letters and petitions, calling for Maria to be released and reunited with her niece. But ICE denies her parole for the third time. Hi, everyone, and good morning. I am Kelly Butler from Legislative District uh, 28 in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. It's a sunny day right before Christmas, and lawmakers and clergy hold a press conference outside the Arizona State Capitol to ask ICE to reconsider Maria's parole request. Then James Pennington of First Congregational United Church of Christ takes a turn at the podium. They are causing further pain, trauma, mental, physical, spiritual health issues that will extend far beyond just this moment in time. This is the definition of inhumane treatment. ICE's position doesn't change. Maria's attorneys use some of the same arguments in Ansley's court ruling to get Maria released. Basically, they ask for ICE to review her individual circumstances to make a decision. We talked to veteran immigration attorney, Susanna McClay, who joined Maria's legal team, Pro Bono. What was the rationale for ICE to deny her parole? It was a form letter, and they had checked two boxes on the form letter, and the first box, it was, you know, we're denying your parole request uh, for, uh, you haven't shown that you're not a flight risk, and you haven't shown that your release would be in the public interest. It's exactly the same form letter that they uh, gave us for the last two requests. We asked ICE to explain the reasoning behind the parole denial. In response, ICE's spokesperson, Yasmin Pitsokiv, sends us a statement reciting the facts of the case, but no explanation as to why Maria was turned down. Maria's next step is to appeal. We asked Susanna how long the appeal process could take. The appeal could be anywhere from you know, 60 days to uh, over a year, uh, two years. It's, it's very hard to, to, to say. There is one more option, though. Maria's attorney is prepared to file a habeas corpus petition. That's the same type of federal lawsuit that helped Ansley get out of detention. Basically, they want to argue that Maria's prolonged detention is violating her constitutional rights. Maria spends Christmas and New Year's in detention, away from her niece. She says they gave her a bar of chocolate and a Pepsi, and afterwards, they were all in lockdown. By January, it's been 10 months since Maria's been in custody and away from her niece, so we visit her at the detention center. There it is. So, visitor parking, attorney parking. We go left there, right there, right there. Yeah, for visitors, all right. It's a Saturday early morning. The Eloy Detention Center is ribboned with uninviting concertina wire and doesn't look any different than a prison. It's actually run by CoreCivic, the largest private prison corporation in the U.S. 
They have contracts at all levels of government for more than 45 facilities, including county jails, federal prisons, and immigration detention centers. In 2019, core civic revenue was nearly $2 billion. She should be expecting us because we set up this interview through the uh, official process, the, the channels with ICE. Uh, but unfortunately, we were told that we could only bring a pen and pad. And no recorder. And so this is the moment where we're going to shut this recording off and pick back up once we've seen Maria. We're back at the car and we've just visited with Maria. We were allowed to shake hands with her. She was uncuffed, wearing a green uniform and black shoes and her hair was pulled back. She thanked us for coming and, and we sat across this table from her in this little tiny room on these blue plastic chairs. Maria told us that she um, had a conversation over the phone with her attorney and she told him that she really wants to be deported. Maria's lawyers had planned to file the habeas corpus lawsuit in the hopes of getting her out. But Maria tells us she can't stand being in detention any longer. She says the food makes her sick. The guards are harsh and racist. There are fights in her pod, and she's often locked down in a tiny cell. But most of all, Maria tells us she thinks deportation at this point is the fastest way to be reunited with her niece. Her plan is to stay in Guatemala with a friend she met in detention. Ten days later, I get to talk to Maria on the phone from Eloy. I ask her how she is. Well, I'm here as always. I ask her about her decision to be deported. The judges and I know that you're locked up in an awful place. That's why they deny you and deny you. So we decide to deport ourselves. It's what they want, for you to deport yourself. Maria's deportation flight is scheduled for March 11, 2020. Almost one year after she and her niece had asked for asylum. That day, the World Health Organization declares a worldwide pandemic due to COVID-19. Immigrants and asylum seekers in ICE custody panic that they will get sick. I speak to dozens of men detained down the road from the Eloy Detention Center at the La Palma Correctional Center. I sent my parole request and it got turned down. Wilfredo Tamayo is a Cuban asylum seeker with asthma. He's one of at least eight men I speak to who tells me he was denied parole before the pandemic and is denied again after COVID-19. It's the same obstacles Ansley and Maria face, but now the stakes of staying detained are even higher. In response to the pandemic, the head of the CDC issues a ban that closes the border to some categories of immigrants. Asylum seekers who attempt what Maria and her niece did, walk up to a port of entry and ask for protection, now are typically turned away or flown back to the countries they fled. The asylum system at the southern border is effectively shut down. Sarah Pierce from Migration Policy Institute again. 
the Trump administration has used the pandemic as an opening to accomplish more on asylum in just one move than they could have done in years. Hola, mami. Hola, nena. Quiero muchos juguetes. ¿Cuál es tu juguete que te gusta? That's Maria and her niece back in Guatemala talking about all the toys the child wants. It's mid-August, and it's been five months since they were reunited at the airport and deported together. Maria keeps in touch with us and her friends via WhatsApp. No se encuentra trabajo acá. Ya sido todo está cerrado. Por la cuarentena están cerrados. There's no work here. Everything is closed because of the quarantine. The restaurants are closed, all of them. Everything is shut down. And the pandemic doesn't want to go away. Days after she arrived, Guatemala's president ordered a lockdown. Large parts of the economy were closed. She was lucky to find a temporary place to stay with her friend. She tried to bring a sense of normalcy to their new life together. During their first days, they went to church, they went to eat Guatemala's classic pollo campero, they celebrated the girl's seventh birthday. Her niece really wants to go to school, even talks about becoming a doctor one day. But schools are all closed. I'm teaching her words, how to join words together so when she goes to school, it won't be hard to read. It won't be hard to learn, like it was for me. Maria taught herself how to read during all those months in the Eloy Detention Center. And now she's teaching her niece. Detention was like... Uh, private school for me, where I learned to read. Maria says she's relieved to have left before COVID-19 hit the Eloy Detention Center. But she fears being back in the same country as a gang that tried to kill them. Her niece asks, what did they send us here? She says, Mommy, why did they send us back to Guatemala? It is too dangerous here, she tells me. It's a bad place. I tell her it was the judge's decision. It wasn't mine. I tell her everything will be okay. But she says to me, Mommy, I don't want anything to happen to you. I don't want to wind up alone. Maria always tries to explain, but it's hard. Now that she's homebound because of the pandemic, it reminds her of being in detention, but it's completely different. She has what's most important right next to her, her daughter. The number of people in ICE custody has fallen by more than half compared to a year ago. Because new asylum seekers are turned away, 
and border crossers are expelled, fewer people are going into ICE custody. And ICE did release some people due to the pandemic. Others got out due to federal lawsuits. But fears about the virus spreading in these facilities have come true. By early September, more than 5,000 detained immigrants had tested positive for COVID-19. Six died. And the people still detained include nearly 3,000 asylum seekers, people who came here hoping for protection. Valeria Fernandez and Jude Jaffe Block reported this episode. Some of the reporting originally appeared in the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting and The Guardian. Some audio from Ansley DeMoose came from an ACLU video available on YouTube. Thanks to Eileen Gortz, Brandon Quester, Philippe Pardo, Grecia Ortiz, Yasmin Pitts O'Keefe, Emily Saunders, Anna Alderstein, Nuhavi Ramirez, and Francisco Flores. Thank you for listening. For more information, toolkits, and to download the annotated transcript for this episode, visit 70millionpod.com. 70 Million is an open-source podcast because we believe we are all part of the solution. We encourage you to use our episodes and supporting materials in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere they can make an impact. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes of our three seasons without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the MacArthur Foundation. 70 Million is a production of Lantigua Williams & Co. Season 3 was edited by Phyllis Fletcher and Laura Flynn. Cedric Wilson is our lead producer and sound designer. Ronald Young Jr. mixed this episode and contributed to sound design. Virginia Laura is our managing producer. Leslie Datsitz is our marketing lead. Laura Tillman is our staff writer, and Michelle Baker is our photo editor. Sarah McClure is our lead fact-checker. Ryan Katz also contributed fact-checking. Juleka Lantigua-Williams is the creator and executive producer. I'm Mitzi Miller.